the language of the universe. But I don't understand it. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Math and Physics Podcast. I'm your host, Parker. And I'm Ray. And we welcome you to episode number 108. We're on. Where today we have quite a special guest with us uh, from the States. We have George Rabuski. George, you want to introduce yourself to the podcast? You know, Sure. Just say um, hello. <laughs> I'm the uh, president and founder of Midwest Area Science and Technology. We're an amateur science organization that... that promotes scientific research without regard to credentials. Some of our people have multiple PhDs. Some of our, our people have no degrees like myself. That's definitely going to be a conversation that I'm sure everybody that is listening. I'm what you'd like, call. I really want to know more. Yeah. I'm what you might call a professional amateur scientist. Perfect way to sum it up. Perfect awesome. way to sum it up. So yeah, this is going to be an awesome episode. This is the first time we have a guest in a long time. Yeah, it's been so, a while, eh? Yeah. It's I been know. a while for a guest. We, we we do have some interesting ideas for other guests coming in the future, so uh, you should look forward to that. Before we do get into the podcast, um, if you are listening to this anywhere, make sure to follow the podcast, subscribe, and leave a comment down in the YouTube video. Why would you leave a comment? <laughs> because you might get chosen as comment of the week. So this week we have Sylvia and her lovely comment. Uh, she met, she says, uh, thank you guys. Because of you, I'm not just learning about the things that you see on your videos. I choose this channel because it's quite interesting. I also follow you on Spotify where I started. Gracias. She says she's Spanish. So she's learning English as well. And she's learning science. So thank you, Sylvia. And you're welcome. Thank you so much. So if you want to be next week's comment of the week, make sure to go to the YouTube video of this episode and leave a comment down below. Um, yeah, other than that. I think that's basically it. I think we can get straight into the podcast. So I think we can begin, George, with the question that I've been waiting to ask you. How did you get into science? What led to where you are today? When I was in elementary school back in 1965 and 66, uh, NASA was launching the Gemini program in basically the lead up to Apollo. And mm -hmm. that's really what got me interested in science. Uh, what got me into physics and math was two things. One, in first grade, the school I was at had what they called the new math. And the new math was just the old math with elements of set theory thrown in, no pun intended. <laughs> and uh, so in first grade, we were sitting here learning about sets, elements, union, intersection, all that stuff. And then we got into the properties of numbers, like the associative properties, commutative properties. And that was fascinating. And then we yeah. went into basic arithmetic, technical arithmetic, and it sucked from there on out. <laughs> you know, it was a really boring because we did the same thing in second grade, the same thing in third grade. And so so I ended up hating math, which is very ironic how things turned out. But I was very interested <laughs> in chemistry. And so one day when I was 12 years old, I was reading a te college textbook on chemistry, uh, co chemical principles. And I got to the chapter on the gas laws. And at that moment, I realized what physics was. I 
realized what you could do with mathematics. It was love at first sight. And the next thing I did is I went out and bought two books. I bought a book called Advanced Algebra and Calculus Made Simple, and I worked my way through it. I remember feeling terribly disappointed when I got to the end of calculus. And they, that's essentially differential calculus. Like, this is what people are afraid of. And I worked my way through it, and it seemed easy. Yeah. Integration was a little harder, but, you know, not bad for 12 years old. And then I got the Feynman lectures on physics, and that's where I learned physics. Mm. The fact that you just mentioned 12 years old, I think, is what's baffling most people right now. Because even <laughs> if people figure this out, I feel like they're doing it at at least 16 to 18 years old. You know, I don't think anybody is really doing this or even figured it out at 12. So, well, see, this that's book just here. insane. This book? <laughs> Gravitation? Yes. Wow. That's I got a... this book when I was 14. By 15, I was working my way through it. Wow. That looks like a very thick book. <laughs> but... It's aptly named. It's aptly yes. named. <laughs> Dust particles are attracted to it as it goes by. <laughs> um, so, yeah. I think, uh, I think one thing that's interesting... You said you were learning about like like some basic elements of set theory in the first grade. Yes. Um, and that's very different, I guess, to what we grew up with. Oh, uh, I grew up very different from you, though. Hey, <laughs> I grew up in India. The educational system so, yeah. abandoned new math because the teachers yeah, couldn't I think, do it. Yeah, I, I think I, I think, think that's think a we, shame, though, set because theory was not taught. Us, I, i've thought about this before and i think i've said this before on the podcast that i think math should be taught using set theory first mm -hmm. it puts <laughs> it into it an builds... it, and once you get past basic calculus everything utilizes set theory i mean even yeah you know yeah. when you start with linear algebra that that is all written in the language of set theory particularly yeah. if you get into vector spaces right I mean, there are the yeah. two approaches. You have the matrix approach and you have the vector space approach, but they're all equivalent. Yeah. And with set theory, you can show that sort of thing. Yeah, and I only got into set theory in the first year of university where we were forced to learn about proofs and proofs, you know, essentially boiled down to the most basic bare bones elements of logic. And so mm -hmm. obviously set theory comes in there. So I was kind of forced... In, I was forced introduced to set theory that way, but then through linear algebra, I got to see how awesome set theory was. And then I was inspired to, you know, think about how learning set theory earlier on would have been so much better to build up kind of the, the, the skills and the knowledge that I use today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So w would you say that the uh, set theory that you learned in that first grade, because I don't think usually people even really remember too much or that they study or learn in first grade, or they just maybe put it at the back of their head and they just take it as given. But my question to you is, like, did you take the knowledge that in first grade and actually, did it actually help with your understanding of the calculus books? And did it actually help not with really. your understanding of the no. stuff? Not really, no, because the calculus book wasn't written in a theoretical way. It was written in a practical way. Anyway, okay, this is a, this is how you calculate a limit. This is how you calculate a derivative. This is how you calculate an integral. It wasn't, 
you know, the formal definition of limits where you have the epsilon and deltas, the, the Weierstrass notation, it wasn't that at yeah. all. So, I mean, you have the two levels of calculus, one the practical level and then the other the theoretical. Now, if you have the practical and you learn the theoretical, the practical becomes much more understandable. Yeah. But I'm not sure that's where you want to start. So would you say... No, but you wouldn't want to start at the theoretical either, though, would you? Or because I, I feel like that might be a little too much. Well, that's what I not... said. Yeah, you want to start with what the practical and then, and then go into the theoretical. But always, oh, sorry, I thought you said But that always remember that you're spiraling back. You're spiraling mm -hmm. through the yeah. material over and over again at, at ever-increasing levels of sophistication. Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing I mean, that, we, yeah, that's the thing that yeah. a lot of professors have trouble grappling with with their students because they've reached a level of sophistication and they don't remember what it's like not to know any of this stuff. That's yeah. such a perfect way to put like half of our teachers here. Yeah, I, mean, I guess yeah. I shouldn't be saying this being in the school. Because the, the, the story is always the same, right? In high school, it's, you know, this is what a limit is. Calculate limits. This is what a derivative is do derivatives and, you know, dot, dot, dot. Next thing you know, one year later, you're doing the exact same thing, but a little bit more complicated. The next year, you're adding dimensions and, you know, abstracting mm. your what, See, what is allowed to be a domain. Yeah. See, that's not the way I did it. <laughs> you know, I did it. I learned the basics and then I got ever, ever expanding books. I mean, you know, I, advanced engineering mathematics books and then i got into the actual theory of calculus analysis you know real and complex analysis functional analysis differential geometry all of that stuff so if you don't mind because i think again a lot of our listeners are going to be very intrigued with you because as i mentioned a lot of them i think are either in school you know, doing a physics degree or thinking about doing a physics degree. And now all of a sudden they're hearing this individual with no degree, literally doing flawlessly in physics. So I think a lot of people, <laughs> sorry, I can't read that. The theoretical minimum. Oh, that's, that's, that's exactly that's the my book. name I, right the there way, under Lenny Susskind's name. We should, we should probably mention that the book written by you, George, the theoretical co minimum co-written by you and Leonard Susskind. Oh, I wrote the first uh, two drafts. He wrote the third draft, and then we hammered out the fourth draft. Wow. Wow. So you worked personally with Leonard Susskind? Yeah. Wow. Uh, well, you, and that, you, was you a funny, that was a funny story, because I'm a relativist, and he's a particle theorist. Normally, we, we would come to blows, right? Mm -hmm. yeah yeah, um, yeah all you have to do is to get re people real a relativist really annoyed is mention ads cft right what is that uh ads Sorry, is anti-de-sitter space and cft is conformal field theory which is a way Are of those like string <laughs> theory with black for black hole right. oh, okay. that's what i that's what i thought and okay, okay. the thing that the reason why it makes relativists crazy is it has nothing to do with reality it's just a mathematical structure to allow you to prove theorems. Hmm. So we don't live in ADS. And the thing that ADS allows you to do with string theory is it allows you to turn off gravity in the black hole. And then you can use a conformal transformation to go from inside the black hole to outside the black hole. And that's where you get the firewall on the event horizon and stuff like that, where strings build up on the on the event horizon oh. and so wow, that's a very interesting 
way to explain it. So that that so that makes relativists nuts because it doesn't have. <laughs> so the fact that you now. got together is crazy to begin with. I'm sorry. So the fact that you got together is pretty crazy to begin. Yeah, with. Yeah. Well, I was listening to his Stanford lectures, and I'm like, you know, that's actually a really like cool lecture. And I checked it out to see if there was a book, and I emailed him and said. Uh, you might remember ask me asking you a question when you came to Madison to give a colloquium on your information theories, black hole stuff. And uh, I just listened to a couple of your lectures on mechanics. Would you be interested in turning this into a book? I think it's wow, that's because I think your lectures are terrific. And he said, you know, I've had lots of people ask if it was a book. You're the first person who asked me about turning it into a book. And go ahead and uh, write a couple of chapters and see where it goes. And we talked a little bit about philosophy and stuff. So, And we were all right on the same page. And so I wrote the first three chapters and sent it to him. He paid me a great compliment. Not that I need compliments, but it was a you know, he said, I've known a lot of amateur yeah. scientists. You're the first one I've met who knows what he's talking about. <laughs> that, That's, that, that must I, be such an amazing I think thing the, to hear. Well, <laughs> form of compliment. You know, a, a lot of amateur scientists are crackpots. To be blunt. <laughs> I, get e I get letters and emails from them all the time. They think that I'm going to be sympathetic towards them because I'm an amateur scientist. No, I am not sympathetic towards them at all. If I think they're full of crap, I will use I will use even more base language than that to tell them what I think. <laughs> as a as a Navy veteran, and my service in the Navy started when I was seventeen, and it basically that's where I learned to teach, and mm -hmm. it has informed you know the attitudes that I got there have informed my life. It's given me a lot of self-confidence and a lot of drive. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the ways that I was able, I've always had the drive. You know, that's yeah. why I was able to stick to a problem until I could sink, drink, drink its blood, right? Mm. <laughs> yeah. And I really want to focus on that drive because I think, as I was mentioning before, I think, I think that's what everyone is so curious to know. How at 13 and 15 and 16 years old did you, well, first of all, the fact that you even went out and bought the books itself, I think is amazing. But second, I, I really want to know if you don't mind sharing, like not obviously in detail, because I don't even know if you remember it, but briefly like your study pattern. Like how did you, how did you even, you know, I can't imagine a 13 year old learning like Feynman's. I wrote lectures. a like, book, which is, that, so. which is available for print on demand from Lulu, from the mass website called uh, Self-Instruction and Teaching, Science Education for the New Millennium. And that describes how I went about it. Mm. In oh, detail. Really? A whole book. Wow. Do you want to briefly summarize it for sure. us? Sure. Yeah. It was all critical thinking, right? Uh, you, you come up with a, you are confronted with an idea and you have to ask yourself, why should I believe this? You know, is this idea based on a fact that was acquired observationally or experimentally, or is it based on a conjecture? 
if it's based on a conjecture, what are the fundamental assumptions of that conjecture? Where did it come from? Why should I pay any attention to this at all? Mm -hmm. And then once you get that, you can start to go, well, how does this relate to other things that I've learned? And that's the pattern of study. It's a lot, you know, you never read a book, unfortunately, from cover to cover. Like if I was going to take this book and analyze it, okay, what you need to, I am not responsible for this title or the subtitle, what you need to know to start doing physics. This was a marketing department. <laughs> Both oh, Lenny really? and I hated that subtitle. Really? It should be theoretical wow. minimum classical mechanics. That's what this is. Mm -hmm. It's a book on classical mechanics. We cover effectively all the classical mechanics in 240 pages. We start with a dynamical system, with a diagrammatic approach to dynamical systems. Okay, almost graph theory. Wow. And then we talk a little bit about coordinate systems, vectors, and some trigonometry. Then we introduce calculus and kinematics. Then we introduce integration and some dynamics. Then we talk about multiple systems and partial derivatives and things like that. And then we go into Lagrangian mechanics. And then we go into Hamiltonian mechanics and then Poisson brackets and canonical transformations. In the appendix, we do celestial mechanics from the Lagrangian approach. All in so the literally, so basically literally the, the Susskind lectures. <laughs> yeah. Like covering well, Susskind lectures, but in a textbook. You know, I wrote, I wrote the first volume and I took his lectures as an outline. And I rewrote okay, right. them. And it was, I'm a very fast writer. And I started in September, and by January, I had written 150,000 words. Wow. Wow. And then we... But this is not even in your feet. I'm so confused as to how... Like, okay, I understand that you've read books on it. Like, I understand that. But, like, this is Leonard Susskind we're talking about. Like, he yeah, but probably, this is classical like, mechanics. The... I guess so. I guess that's the. the I mean, it's it, it is what it is. You know, I mean, it, yeah. That's such when I go to a colloquium, people sweat because they know I'm going to ask basic questions. If I don't know what something is, I'm going to ask, and yeah. better be able to answer right. <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's such a nice way to way to tackle things. Because again, I think I mean we were talking about this before the podcast, but I think the most common thing that with 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 people or at least with me literally before today was thinking that you know to actually get anywhere in science we we're literally talking about this last night too like to get anywhere in science you would like need some credibility and that's why we do school like why are we in school is basically what the conversation well, was last night and we're like well so that we can be in science but now well, we're literally learning that that is certainly needed. one way to do it but you have to understand that these degrees have only been around for a couple of hundred years. Yeah. And people have been doing science for thousands of years. Thousands and thousands. Right. <laughs> you know, so there are many pathways to reaching an objective. I took, so the, I took for me what was the low energy curve. Hmm. Getting I mean, back to mechanics. Right. Yeah. 
So you were presented with, you know, it, it, at any point in your life, you could have made the decision to go to school, right? So what made you stick to just self-learning? Well, part of the reason was the school system. The school system was so slow and so boring. I mean, you know, and I wasn't only interested in math or science. I mean, for example, by the time I was in third grade, I had memorized, for example, all the battleships that got whacked at Pearl Harbor. So you just like to do that kind of stuff, yeah. basically. Like, I mean, I, I, studied, I studied military history. Right. I studied, you know, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a professional writer. I write, mm. you know, I, I've written for newspapers. I've written for magazines. I've written short stories. I've written, you know, I write horror stories. I write fantasy stories. I write science fiction, mm. rarely. But, uh, mm. you know... I write spy stories and I also do, uh, I also design fantasy role-playing games. There's from just so much to, creation. Yeah, I just, <laughs> where to where, I think the perfect word for you, I think you just said it would be creative. Yeah. Like, and, you're just so creative. I mean, you know, again, you have to remember that I started doing that stuff when I became impatient with school. So I started learning on my own. And I saw no reason to stop. I, you know, I didn't do it all myself. I had professor, I would walk into a professor's office and start talking to them at the university of Wisconsin and Madison. And, and were, were you a student of this university or would you just, no, I just walk walked in. in. Wow. <laughs> wow. Wow. And what would the uh, professors, what would the professors think or say, or, well, some of them would say, well, I don't know how to answer that question. Why don't you go talk to this person? No, no, no. But I'm saying like they would actually talk to you. Like, I don't sure. know. I, I would just think someone not even in this school, I feel like, would or, or would you not even bring that up? Would you just? I wouldn't say anything. You know, oh, okay. you want to know something? Yeah. Tell me. I have never had anybody ask me if I had a degree. Hmm. That's almost a compliment, I feel. That's almost a good thing, right? Because they're like, oh, it's almost like people probably already understood that, okay, this guy probably has a degree. I mean, I walked into the physics me. department at one time when I was 13, and somebody asked me, what's the integral of sine x? And I told him, you know, my cosine x, and he said, well, he knows his integrals. Um, <laughs> you know, that's hilarious. That's, that's hilarious. <laughs> that, that, that's especially funny because... Like at the beginning of the semester, when I had to evaluate my first integral after the whole summer, I just I was like, I forget how to integrate. <laughs> <I don't> know. <laughs> and you know, and I learned I, I learned computer programming when I was in high school. I built my first computer when I was in high school, an MSI eighty eighty. You think programming is hard now? Try machine code with hexadecimal language with toggle switches on the front. I was just going to ask you how, like, when you say built computer, it's very I different mean, from people saying I built, built a computer today. A computer. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, like actually. I mean, when I was at, I actually had a two year paid appointment at the physics department at Madison in, at the University of Wisconsin. And I never told anybody that I was an electronics technician because I didn't want to get stuck doing experiments. 
I was there. I was basically the department Mathematica guru. Right. I don't actually think we've spoken about the Mathematica part on the podcast. Maybe talk a because I know. So, I mean, Mathematica. For people who don't know what Mathematica for people who don't know what Mathematica is, Mathematica started out as what's called a computer algebra system back in the in the 80s. Uh, Steve Wolfram is a genius. Uh, he was he was very much like me in some respects, uh, except he was actually publishing papers in Phys Rev when he was in his teens. Wow! In wow. Part, in particle physics, what? and uh, you know, so we, you know, I was just doing black hole stuff and he was doing particle physics is basically the divergence. And I was also doing stuff in biochem. I had my own biochemistry lab. I was doing my own research in protein structures and bacteria with my own home laboratory. Where did Wait, this come what? from? <laughs> where did that, that's completely different from what we've been talking about. Where did the biology, where did that come from? I did mention that I was reading a book on chemistry when it started, right? Yeah. Right, right, you, yeah. did, you did. So, you know, I was very interested in biochemistry and particularly bacterial biochemistry. So I was scrounging equipment from the city health department and from the university biochemistry department and i had professors there who would give me stuff and i'd bring them home and set up my lab i had my own paper chromatography rig and i was able to use uh, solvents to dissolve to break up cells and to get the amino acids out and figure out what proteins were there that, that is <laughs> not bad for a schmuck with no degrees right <laughs> yeah can't even imagine oh my god <laughs> like wow and yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah so yeah uh, the only thing i'll say about my military service is i had planned to go into the navy to become a meteorologist mm. uh, again i was doing uh, numerical modeling of thunderstorms at the physics department we were doing it remotely on a cdc 7600 in colorado and it was in fortran and <laughs> Oldest language known to men. No. No, no, I, I just uh, make a joke because it's so old. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm joking. There are older ones, but yeah. No, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's just a modern joke because like in our class every time, because our, our teacher used to code in Fortran. So she's always like, oh, I'm so old because we use, because it's just a joke, sorry. Well, you know, I've learned Fortran, basic, C, C++, and stuff like that. And then I have found Mathematica and I never looked back. As a programming language, mm. is superior to all of them. And uh, is that really a is it is it really a program? Oh, I use it for programming course? every day. Uh, oh, really? And I've written programs to support my role playing games with it. So it's not just mathematical. Oh. You can do could check you, if processing. You, if you wouldn't mind, I'm sorry. Sorry, but sorry, but if you wouldn't mind, could you go into detail in some of those? Because I just want to know like what programming mathematica looks like like what did you do in relation to mathematics like did you well, add let me some bring up a let you... me bring up a program for you and i'll show you what it does so in my game system uh, there's something called pre-adventures so you can have adventures before your character starts out and get over there i gotta find my cursor oh there's this stuff. i should mention that majority of the listeners of this podcast like as you mentioned listen to the podcast and don't watch it so if you right. can explain it, that might be... Yeah, I will, but I bring right, up a right. code fragment first. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. 
Yeah. So the the thing is, I've I've heard of math Mathematica, of course. Mm. I've actually never used Mathematica myself. It's very expensive. <laughs> it I, comes with the school, though. Oh, really? Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. So I. So I'll I, I will if you'll let me, I'll share my very screen different. again. It's very different. Yeah, you yeah. can go for what it. What this program looks like. So my understanding, I mean, unless before we're going to look at the program right now, but my understanding is that Python is more of an actual coding language. This is more of like a math language. Uh, this is a. This is all. This is what Mathematica code looks like. A lot of lot more words than I was expecting. Well, what this does, you know, like so let me run this and I'll show you what the what the product looks like. So for everybody listening, uh, we're just looking at a piece of code here. It's quite an excessive program, actually. That's quite excessive. I will put an input of five in here. It says, so your pre-adventure is about a monster hunt and organized effort downtown to destroy a dangerous monster. You get a good thing. You get a bad oh. thing. This is part of your game. That's why. Okay, okay. Sorry, oh. sorry. I thought this was like a math program. Okay, that makes sense. No, I mean, it's cool mathematical. That, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say that that's, it's really cool that you actually implemented Mathematica in your, like you're actually using a mathematical it, it's model a full, It's a full-fledged generic programming language. The neat thing about it is if you look at Fortran or C or Python, those are all procedural languages. And you right. can do procedural programming in Mathematica. But if you look at Lisp, for example, that's a functional language. And you can do functional programming in Mathematica. You can also do rule-based and transformational programming and modular programming. You can do all of those paradigms all at once in one wow. The The biggest, the most impactful paper I ever wrote that got published in a journal was a paper I wrote on solving the diffusion equation in Mathematica using built-in method my own procedural method, my own rule-based method, and my own <clears throat> and my own functional method, all in the same and got exactly the same results from each method. Wait, that's actually very powerful. That's actually that's yeah. literally what we're learning right now. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Solving, solving, I mean, you know, a, a simple partial computer. differential equation like the diffusion equation, but I yeah. showed how to do it in four different styles of programming, all in the Mathematica. And that's wow. built into Mathematica. No other programming language does that. Wow. There is actually something similar to Mathematica, like a Canadian version of that. It's called There's Maple. something called Maple, but the yeah. Maple is more traditionally a computer algebra system where Mathematica yes. started. But Mathematica mm. has you can actually write applications in Mathematica that don't require you to have Mathematica running. You can compile mm. it. Mm -hmm. oh. my 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 knowledge is, is is that maple was actually written by a bunch of waterloo students like from university of waterloo in canada that's my understanding and, um, as well yeah and we used it last year for some like research because we were like solving a bunch of pdes so like when you said the word mathematica i knew what you meant but i had no idea that it was like actually because i guess like the only level of code that i did was just putting in the PDEs to solve. Sure. Like, I mean, I it, actually... you can, there are three levels of use of Mathematica. One, you can use it as like a 5,000 button calculator. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> the other thing is that you can use it as a scratch pad. You can open up a Mathematica notebook and you can do a calculation. And third is you can develop 
an entire programming system based on it. Are you familiar with Wolfram Alpha? Of yeah. course. Wolfram Alpha is a 10,000 line Mathematica program. No way. <laughs> yes. Wolfram Alpha is a Mathematica By the way, makes so much sense. This yeah. book it would be. was typeset yeah. entirely in Mathematica. Oh, wow. What? How can you write a book on what? I'll show, let How me show you. Sense? For those people who are watching, um, let me pull up a. A document Wait, that I wrote recently. Very interesting. I didn't actually. Wait, um, it was typeset in mathematics. In mathematics. I don't understand yes, how I I presented the PDFs to Basic Books, and they were typeset in Mathematica, and they used the typesetting that I said. I'm the first author at Basic Books to typeset their own book. Wow. <laughs> wow. Wait, why why did you do this? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> because Mathematica is so much easier to use than tech. I hate tech. Really? Yeah, tech tech, no it, tech is <laughs> like 1980s technology and we're using it today. So here's a lecture here's a system I'm preparing. This is again entirely in Mathematica and I'll share my screen. Wow, this is um pretty sad because i think everyone knows on the podcast how much i love my latex so uh the fact that uh <laughs> so for example let me make this bigger so you can see it yeah by the way for the listeners out there we're just we're i believe we're looking at just a copy of the uh of the text right yeah, now just yeah. a pdf yeah but it looks and very this different is, from this is not a pdf this is a mathematica oh. notebook live okay oh okay mathematica notebook so What's you the can see the typesetting here. Oh. It's beautiful. So you can easily do a lot of stuff. And the nice thing is you can do your research in a Mathematica notebook. You can then take your Mathematica notebook and turn it into text like this. Let me show another example of something wow. that I presented just a couple of weeks ago at the Midwest Relativity Meeting. This makes me want to get yeah. Mathematica. Mathematica. <laughs> now, like, the like, thing about getting Mathematica, there are three versions of Mathematica that you can get. The first version of Mathematica you can get is if you're a student, you can get an academic version. And that's like 150 bucks. And most schools have that. Mm -hmm. Second version is the academic and professional version. And... Yeah, I believe the other one is some six to nine hundred dollars or something, right? The, the full version, uh, the, something, like, something like that. Well, the academic version is like thirty five hundred dollars. Oh wow! And then there's Jeez. the hobbyist version, which is about three hundred bucks. The difference is that you can't buy it using a company card or anything like that. You have to, use, and you can't use it to make money. So oh, since I do consulting, I have to have the professional version. But, no, I'm assuming, yeah, it wouldn't be the, yeah, yeah exactly. That, yeah. That, so that anyways, this is the paper I presented at the Midwest Relativity Meeting. Wait, why Why is it so expensive? Uh, I'm Wolfram did a lot of work. Because everything. I can take a PDF, import it into Mathematica as a Mathematica notebook, manipulate it, and then save it as a PDF. Wow. So like this, like, is, I remember. Uh, yeah, 
Can you see wow, this? Uh, can you see this? Yes, screen? Yeah, yeah, we can. So it By has way, a built-in uh, slideshow yeah. system. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, by the way, for the listeners out there, we're, we're, we're currently watching a presentation that and uh, so, uh, George presented. I, so I talked about the Schwarzschild metric for the black holes. I introduced the Kruskal-Zakira's coordinates. Uh, here's the program that I wrote to calculate the Kruskal diagram, and that's the output. Wow. wow. That's, uh, I don't think we understood much of that, but that looks pretty cool. <laughs> But and all of this was from Mathematica, right? All of this. All of this. This is this is the entire program to generate this di next diagram. Wow, that's a pretty confusing. Wow. Okay. And then yeah. I talk about what a Penrose diagram is, and here's the uh, here's the Penrose diagram. Here's the program for generating a Penrose diagram for flat for Minkowski space. And there it is. And then the Penrose diagram for Schwarzschild space-time, and that's this. By the way, yeah. that space-time. You can see that space and time are, are beginning to accumulate. This would be the event horizon. This oh, upper. Oh, we see that. Oh, that's a left really cool graph, or not graph plot. Yeah, that is right. a really cool plot. Wow. <laughs> and that's then, so cool. and then you can look inside the black hole, and the event horizon what? down in the lower right, and that hyperbolic top is the singularity. Oh my! Wow, this is crazy. And sorry, does this like, does this like conform to? Sorry, what theory? Sorry, I'm not sure. Of this what is general relativity. This, this is the this Penrose diagram. Okay. This okay, is okay. the Penrose diagram created by Roger Penrose. But there's wow. a but wow. now you can calculate the Penrose diagram. You don't just have to draw it by hand. And that was a and that was a function that you derived on mathematics. Yes, right? that is correct. Yes. And so this I'm is really, yeah. Sorry. This is the these are the coordinates for the different for the different plots in wow. sport child geometry for the static black hole case. For the listeners out there, it's basically a lot of hyperbolic sines, cosines, and tangents. So it's <laughs> not much that we're really watching and learning, but I think it's cool that yeah, we're looking at the Yeah, it's very cool plots. that yeah. You can you can do this all in Mathematica. I think yeah, and the ma and right it there. takes yeah. Mathematica less than a second to produce those diagrams. Wow! 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 So it's on very, my very on my desktop supercomputer. Oh right, the okay. the, 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 yeah, the, the hardware process. is an important piece there. It might take right. it might take a couple of seconds to do it on a regular desk on a regular laptop. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I I have a very interesting or not or at least interesting question to me right now, um, which is based on all of these talks that you give. So I know we haven't really gotten into your Midwest science quite yet, and I'm very uh, interested to get into there. But before we do, I just want to know a little bit more about when you give these talks, like when you go and present or when you go and teach or whatever, because you were talking previously about all these uh, you know, presentations or papers that you've written. My right. question is, as an amateur scientist who doesn't have, or at least my understanding, who doesn't have access to, you know, multi-million dollar laboratories and universities and multi-million dollar telescopes and stuff like that how do you do it like do you borrow other things do well, you what's that two process things. like one i don't do experiments much because okay. experiments cost a lot of money now having exactly. said that in may i taught a 20 lesson course on basic electronics and i put together a kit that included 
a digital, a dual trace digital oscilloscope for 300 bucks that for 150 bucks that people can buy off Amazon. Mm. So for like 350 bucks, everybody had a nice electronics kit and they were able to build, to follow the experiments and stuff. Oh, very cool. And I taught it over, it, it was through MAST and I taught it over Skype. Wow. And what about the higher levels? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm mainly in the last for example, 15 that months, burst. Yeah. In the last 15 months, a, a year ago, I taught a 20 lesson course on general relativity through mass. Wow. Mm -hmm. In okay. December, I taught a six lesson course on programming and Mathematica. In January, I taught a 20 lesson course on mathematical methods using Mathematica. And then I taught the uh, electronics course. Uh, we have a course that's underway right now being taught by our resident mathematician on asymptotic methods using Mathematica. Are, are any of these courses still available? Um, we're only beginning to start playing around with uh, experimenting with recording video and stuff. Uh, I'm thinking about the next set we do are going to be put on, are going to be put on, uh, on our YouTube channel. The only YouTube mm -hmm. thing we have right now is a storm chase that wasn't that great. <laughs> okay. But yeah, so uh, how many people are, are participating in these courses? It ranges from three to seven. So it doesn't okay. overburden Skype. Right. But yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, it, it, it you know, we don't really have enough people to make use have buying a copy of Zoom worthwhile. Yeah, uh, right. Because Skype. Oh, right. I, I keep forgetting this is. This, yeah. I, I I I keep forgetting that this is the school account, which is why we have Zoom for free. Right. And without right. that, that wouldn't even be a thing. I mean, so I have a, like a I, I have a client I have a, a client version of Zoom, so if somebody else starts a call, I can link up to it. But. Okay. Uh, but like I said, Skype is free and it, it's let's talk a little more about your clients. You mentioned clients and I just thought about like, I know uh, you were mentioning that before you were doing currently what you're doing, you were a contractor physicist. And I would really love to know like some crazy things. <laughs> Has anyone ever told you or given you a crazy contract where, or sure, again, the, when I say crazy. The strangest, the strangest contract I had was applying group theory to mythological type analysis where you basically attach a, you basically convert the idea of an archetype into an object and you assign relations between them as a mapping. And from that, you can sort of build symmetries. And that of course leads you to group theory. Wow. I Wait, just... this is, is this part of a, this is part of a is this part of a game like what is the no this was a person's phd he was turning his phd thesis into a book and he wanted me to help him with the mathematica to do that so this was all oh. done in mathematics oh. and so he had he had some ideas about the symmetries between between yes. different um mythological types sure yeah Interesting. Like, Interesting. Wow, and of course, weird. one of my hobbies, because I, I'm a game designer, is I study uh, comparative religion and comparative mythology. 
when, oh, I, so when I'm not doing like anything else, I, I uh, translate Ara biblical Hebrew and Aramaic texts. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> this, <laughs> this is so crazy. <laughs> I've also studied about I've also studied about a dozen languages. Of course wow. you have. So, what? which languages do you do you speak? Um, well, speak. Uh, or write. It's been or twenty read. years since I've done anything with any of them, but I've learned uh, French, Spanish, German, uh, Latin, Greek, Arabic, Hebrew, Biblical Hebrew, Russian. Wow! So, wow! <laughs> and then a lot of that you... was a lot of that. The only thing I'll say about a lot of that is it's military. So, uh, <coughs> oh right, that a lot of that I really yeah. shouldn't be talking about. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. <laughs> so, but I really want to know. Maybe I mean, not we don't have to focus on the language part, but I really want to know, like deep down, I guess maybe it might be a simple question, but why? Like, why do you do? Do you just enjoy doing all these different things? Like, why do you do? Because usually when I talk to a scientist or a professional or something, they'll be like, oh, yeah, but I've been doing this for 50 years. Or, you know, oh, yeah, I mean, I go to work and I do this for 50 But you do like 16 different things in a week. So, like, why, if you don't mind me asking? I'm interested. Uh, when That's, I get interested in yeah. something, I focus on it. And I ask, is this something I really want to do? And if it is, I throw myself into it. Oh. Yeah, that obsession I feel is such a is such a trait to have as a scientist. You know that just that sheer obsession, that sheer passion for wanting to do something, or needing to finish something, now, or anything like that. Getting back to this, for example, there those people people in academia have this tendency to be very derisive of normal people. Yeah. This book was written for normal people. And we've mm -hmm. sold in the United States over 200,000 copies of it. It's a New York wow. Times bestseller. It's very and there are a thousand equations in here. I know because I wrote them all. <laughs> wow. The fact that 200,000 people will pick up a book with a thousand equations really shows that you've almost done what you wanted to do. Yeah, exactly. Which is like almost like spread this love or exactly. spread this understanding to everyone else. And that was the thing that was so remarkable with working with Lenny, because even though we're from completely different camps, mm. we had a single vision that worked in this case. Yeah. And so is the theoretical minimum, is it a book made for people who aren't really thinking uh, about physics? The way, I, the way I look at this is it's classical mechanics for people who don't want to go to school. Wow. So is it, um, I guess my, my question is, for somebody who's already studied classical mechanics, would it be kind of like, like, They've already seen everything that's in the book, right? Well, don't, you know, don't take my word for it. Another friend of mine, I don't like, I don't always like to name drop, but another friend of mine who actually wrote the review on the dust jacket of the hardcover version is Sean Carroll. 
Wow. I'm Sean Carroll. Sean, I've known Sean for years. What? That's and insane. <laughs> we've cor- we've corresponded many times. And he wrote that almost on every page he encountered a, a revelation. Wow. Wow. So someone like him can appreciate that, that I'm sure that anyone can. Because I'm sure he doesn't really think about the classical mechanics that he learned when he was in university. Oh, well, you know, I mean, I bought, you know, there's the classical mechanics that you learn in, that you learn, and it boils down to one thing. You're creating an equation of motion. That's what you're doing in classical mechanics. You're either creating an equation of motion or you're solving one. Yeah. Now, the other thing is, in all of physics, there are only two problems with an exact solution, right? The two-body problem and the simple harmonic oscillator. Mm-hmm. Everything right. else is an approximation. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's the thing that you have to think of as you're going through this. These are all the Lagrangian method, the, even the Newtonian method. We teach the Newtonian method first because to derive it is fairly simple, but it's the most complicated way of doing mechanics. Yeah. If you're willing to accept the Lagrangian method, you could teach a monkey to do it. If you turn three cranks and you have an equation of motion, right? Yeah. You take, a deri- you take a partial derivative, you take another partial derivative, and then you take a derivative of a partial derivative, and bang, you have your equations of motion. It's that, just that simple. Yeah. You add this, you add this, you subtract that, boom. You're done. You have yeah. an equation of motion. You this can't is, do that in Newtonian learning. mechanics. The other thing yeah, is like, people are often muddled about what Newtonian mechanics is. F equals MA does not define force. It, it establishes a numerical equivalence between force and the mass of acceler- and the accelerated mass. It tells you what force does. Force accelerates a mass. But it doesn't mm-hmm. tell you what F is. If it's gravitational, F is minus GMM over R squared. And then you plug that in and you have a differential equation. Yeah. But... Mm. You often have to use dimensional analysis or empirical fitting to figure out what F is. Right. And that's something that we don't spend any time on at all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we don't really think of those things, I think, because as you said, like the people that are teaching it have, I I think, like understood it to be so fundamental that they don't even think you know, as we were talking about it, like they don't even think what it's like to learn from our end. Yeah. So they're just like, I mean, oh yeah, F equals MA, you know. You know, the secret weapon of the theoretical physicists is dimensional analysis. Yeah. Because yeah. just by understanding the, the, the dimensional units that are being used in a quantity, you can establish a formula, a, a qualitative formula. It might be off by constants, but that's it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really an amazing thing. And we spend no time teaching people to do that. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Brilliant. If you liked all of the things that we spoke about in this podcast so far, which 
is actually a lot, then you're definitely going to want to check out Brilliant to get a more in-depth look at each one of these topics. So, so far, it's hard to put into a single box what we've been speaking about. We've been talking about physics, math, scientific thinking in general, computer science, and more. If you head over to brilliant.org, you can find courses on every single one of these topics. And the first chapter of every single course is free to just go and try out. And if you want to continue on and go deeper into these courses, you can use code MPP for 20% off of your premium membership or go to brilliant.org MPP for this offer. So go ahead and have fun learning with these interactive courses and let's get back to the episode. Well, actually, I remember in our thermodynamics course, we did have some, like we, we had to deal with dimensional analysis in the sense where they gave us a, a problem. I think we were dealing with like the shearing force, like uh, there's like a viscous liquid, something like that. But that's more fluid use... dynamics than thermodynamics. Right, right. Um, it, it was all under the, the same umbrella mm -hmm. of the larger like statistical mechanics. Um, but we had to use just just using uh, dimensional analysis. We had to establish some proportionality between um, between um, like I remember quantities I, I, I briefly involved. remember that. It, it, it I was, remember how important it was. Yeah, it was it was a very interesting problem because you had to boil it down to what was happening. And think about, okay, there are, there are molecules bouncing that have velocities and there's mm. density and there's a mass and all these. And so you, you arrange these quantities together to get some kind of relationship. And, and all of a sudden, because the dimensions work out, it's, it's, it's a relationship. Right. Right. And right. so being able to come up with that and another technique is order of magnitude estimation, which a lot of people don't really know how to do. And that gives you your first BS detector. Yeah. You know, okay. so that gives you that gives you an order of magnitude and you can look at the results you're getting and compare it to that and see if you have any hope of being in the right ballpark. Mm -hmm. Right. We're very familiar with that. Uh, <laughs> dealing with uh, astronomical quantities. <laughs> yes. In, in astrophysics yeah. is where you get a lot of that. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, and in fact, uh, that, you know, I spent a lot of time doing astrophysics, as you, as you mentioned. I've done gamma ray burst, uh, power spectral densities. I've done neutron star models and things like that. Mm -hmm. So in so, fact, I, with yeah. another mass member, and I actually solved the uh, TOV equations for a neutron star, the, the top, the Tolman-Oppenheimer-Volkov equation. See something like that. I just, I just want to know. I just, I really want to know if, if, if a professor, like, how do you know? First of all, uh, I guess this is part one of the question. How do you know that no one else is working on the current problem that you are? I don't care because hmm, you just, you're just gonna <laughs> do it anyways. Okay. Second question. I think this is a little more interesting because you're so interested in everything. How do you pick and choose what you actually research, like? You, That's a really good it like question. Old? It's what grabs me. It's what grabs yeah. me. I have like three is or four it, things. Well, I'd like to do that, but this is really interesting. Right. So is it often the case where you 
find a new thing to research. You it grabs your attention, so you focus all of your time on it, and then maybe a little bit after that, something else grabs your attention. So you kind of push everything else to the side, so you don't really get much done in one singular topic. I have a cabinet here, and I have like twenty research notebooks. So you so you don't really go and, back and forth. You just and I'll take a research notebook out, and I'll do a page on it and then I'll set it aside. And if I get grabbed by something, of course, then I'll have 15 or 20 pages done and then I'll put it aside. Mm -hmm. But, mm -hmm. you know, uh, yeah. to give you an one thing, I got hooked into re doing a research that I didn't want to get into. Uh, but I was in my mid thirties, I'm now 61. And I was kind of depressed. I couldn't think of a good problem to work on. Another way of putting it is all the easy problems had been done. Mm -hmm. and, you do now, right? and my wife of that time who passed away in 2000, said to me, okay, what's the hardest problem in physics? And I told her, you are not going to get me to work on quantum gravity. <laughs> she said, why not? And I said, the graveyards are filled with theorists who died on that hill. And she said, what makes it so hard? And that, of course, was the fateful answer. And I had to explain to her, how general relativity works and how quantum <laughs> mechanics works and the two shall never meet hmm. because you know basically it comes down to in general relativity you have a grid and you know exactly where things are and exactly when they are and how fast they're moving you have them you have the energy momentum tensor and then you have the and that's equal to the curvature tensor right mm -hmm. so you can't do that in quantum mechanics because you have conjugate variables. Mm -hmm. Energy, you know, position and momentum are conjugate variables. Energy and time are conjugate variables. Angular orientation and angular momentum are conjugate variables. So if you know one, you can't know the other. Mm -hmm. And position and position and momentum are conjugate variables so you can't do general relativity in quantum mechanics and so she began progressing and she would come up with a bunch of things all the time about ways of tackling the problem and at first it was like no that won't work because of this and it took me no time to think of what was wrong with it and eventually she being very clever she started coming up with more complicated things that i couldn't just brush aside then it might take me five or 10 minutes to think of a reason why it wasn't going to work. Now I'd been reading a book on topology and she asked me a question to this day. I can't remember what the question was. She came up with this idea and I said, no, that won't work. And I remember hearing an audible click in my head, which probably means I have a brain tumor or something like that. <laughs> and I thought that won't work, but what about this? And I had a revelation. Now, we know that right now we only have one good theory of gravity. That's general relativity. 
Right. And we're trying to unify gravity with the other forces. I don't know if that's possible because gravity does things that none of the other forces do. Right? If gravity is the curvature of space-time around a, an energy density, a mass energy density, then effectively space-time is measuring that mass energy density, right, by its curvature. So right. in a sense, without taking consciousness into it, because I think that that makes me itch every time people talk about that, space-time is acting like an observer yeah so space-time can't know where a, an electron is or its momentum any better than anybody else can so maybe a way of doing quantum of uh, doing quantum gravity would be all right let's look at these uncertainties and instead of going from point to point we go from ellipsoid to ellipsoid Mm -hmm. I actually found a mathematical structure that does it. It's called a probabilistic metric space. Locally, it's discrete, but globally, it's Euclidean. And of course, using, is... a, using the Cartan process in differential geometry, you can always transform a Euclidean geometry into a Riemannian geometry. So that's one of the things that I'm working on. Wow, and is this this is a this is a current thing that you're thinking about? No, this is one of the things that I'm thinking of. One of but, the things. Are there are there like a list of like a top five that you have that you're working on right now? Um, right now I'm doing a lot of educational stuff, and mm -hmm. that's taking a lot of my time. Mm -hmm. um, I'm maintaining the Mast website. We have a lot of free resources on there. I'm converting a lot of Mathematica notebooks to HTML, which it does intrinsically, so that's nice. I don't have to write all the code. Mathematica will handle a lot of that. That's nice. That's actually. But, uh, you know, so we're a Mathematica shop. In fact, Wolfram Research has given us six Mathematica licenses, professional Mathematica licenses, that they update for us every year. Wow. That definitely helps. Wow. <laughs> that definitely helps. Yep, yep. So, I guess they're I like guess they like right, what we're doing. Yeah. Mm, I'm sorry. I guess maybe right now, yeah, may, maybe right now you're more in the educational theme, right? So no, I do maybe, research too. It's just that also, it takes a lot of time and focus to do that, and sometimes it's difficult for me to find the time. I I now own a house. There are house repairs that have to be made. Things, you know, I yeah, life, just life, life. Yeah, it's all. Uh, Right. Well, real life is what happens when you're not doing anything else, right? Right, exactly. And so, you know, every every Saturday afternoon we have a research session for MAST where we're about to start going through a book called Perfect Form, which is about variational methods in elementary physics. And we're, we're going to be doing the problem set for MAST members and That'll Sorry. So when you say we, like the, I, I the members, of, the membership of Mass who participate in that meeting will get together and work these problems. No, but these are just like because I know Mass. You also has like learners, right? Not them, just like the teachers almost. 
Is that what you would say? Or like everybody par- part of the everybody's part of the everybody's part of it. Everybody's allowed. Everybody who okay. wants to be involved can be involved. Can anybody be involved? Because I'm absolutely, sure our listeners, are our, our dues are to. pretty severe. We charge ten dollars a year, okay. <laughs> American. I was actually getting, I was actually getting, <laughs> or or a hundred dollars for life membership. Wonderful. Okay. Okay. And our our website is www.madsci-tech.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, used to be Madison Area Science and Technology, and we didn't want to change the website when we changed mm. our name. But it's now Midwest Area Science and Technology, or we just call it MAST. Right. Yeah. So don't worry. We'll we'll put the link in the description below for anyone who wants to check the That's website cool. out. If you want to look at that, not not to worry. Yeah, because I'm I'm actually pretty interested in how you started this in the first place like maybe take it to to the mad part of it when not, not in the midwest why, um, if you were already doing research why start this i don't know i've always been interested i, I never believed that i was unique mm-hmm. um i've always met people who were interested in science but they had the feeling that it was impossible without a degree and I know that it's not. Mm-hmm. Proof, living proof. And so I found people who were interested in pursuing it on their own. You know, some of them have degrees, some of them or... don't, but you know that mm-hmm. doesn't matter. We don't care what people's credentials are. So the now, ones that have degrees, oh, sorry. Now we are very, we don't take we don't take ourselves too seriously. I mean, you may have gotten that impression that I like right. to tell jokes about myself all the time. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's like, oh, I have a point, but if I comb my hair the right way, it doesn't show. <laughs> but uh, you know, but we take the we take this the material very seriously. We don't allow. Mm we get very uptight with loosely presented material. Hmm. Uh, We expect people to nail these things down solidly before they present them. And if they're not nailed down, we will nail it down for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what kind of presentations are you, because I know you were talking about your presentations. But sure. I'm, I'm curious to know, like, because you mentioned some of them have degrees, some of them don't. So are there, like, different calipers, like, like different levels of presentation? Sure, like, my wife has given talks about uh, spreadsheet programs that she's used. My wife is also an amazing Mathematica programmer. Uh, she actually really? wrote a Mathematica program that, that duplicates a piano. So you press buttons and, and it plays music. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> no, Mathematica no. program. That's interesting. So, I mean, it, it, you know, Mathematica is a generic programming language. It, you can do right. just about anything in it. And But, uh, you know, we had one guy who was a database, a database programmer. Uh, he's since passed away, but he would give us talks about how to use the database system in Mathematica and stuff like that. So it isn't just math okay. and physics. 
not um, yeah, I also have a uh, 10 lesson course on advanced severe weather spotter training. So if people want to go storm chasing with us, they have to go through that. Hmm. But I'm a, yeah. I'm a sneaky SOB. Uh, my wife has yeah. anxiety and depression disorder, and I don't necessarily mean to post that on the internet, but she has trouble with coping with technical terms sometimes. And I, one of our members was taking the course as a review, which you have to do every five years. And I was, I was basically having guys sit in on it while we were doing this. And then I was giving, I always give a final exam and people get a chance to choose what kind of exam they want. They can have an oral one hour timed oral exam. They can have a one hour written timed exam, or they can have a three day take home exam. Of the hundred people who've gone through the severe weather spotter course, two people have done the take home exam. Because I assume you have full access to the internet and books and even people like me. So I make mm -hmm. it so that you're going to need that. <laughs> you know, if you do a take home yeah. exam, it's a research program. You know, like, uh, for example, I'll say, find a spotter location and develop a range card for it. You know, mm -hmm. where you where you draw a map and you establish distance from that point to landmarks in the area so that if you see a tornado in there, you know how far away it is. Well, so I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's a whole process. Yeah, that, to go is, that with is a full project. Tornado catching. Like, I have no yeah. idea how that even. And starts. so, you know, but, you know, I was also a faculty member of Henley Putnam University for a period of time, which is basically a spook school, if you know what that means. Not really. An intelligence school. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, like, and I was, a I, I, I was a no I was a professor at this spook school for a time and I did okay. the same thing with my students there. I gave I gave them a choice what kind and every exam I wrote by hand and it was different for every student. Wow. What? Wow. That seems overly excessive. I've never seen a professor put so much work into a class. Well, I taught people. I taught I taught the course through homework. That's how I right. that's how I would teach people. And, you know, I would recognize you have this weakness and we have to shore that up. And wow. Like that. That's how I knew. So how many students were. I'm sorry. How many students would you be teaching? Um, the most I had was 10. Okay, so you didn't have to, you know, look after 70 students. No, I didn't. I, I, it wasn't a warehouse course like when I was at Madison and we had 300 people in Physics 202. You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just, yeah, just to get but an I idea. But I think those... I, I personally think those warehouse courses are suck anyways. Mm. Mm. Well, I mean, hopefully you taught, I'm sure you definitely inspired some people in that class. I mean, if I were to see my professor putting this much work into my class, I feel like I would automatically get, you know, more inclined to do it because. Yeah. Well, you know, I actually had a really good, uh, you know, sort of drifting into forbidden topics briefly, but I actually had a really nice feedback from one of my students who had been a Marine Scout sniper 
who was going through the course. And one of the courses I taught was weapons and weapon systems, which was a tactics course. And he said, you could tell that the person who taught this was a sniper. Mm. Really? Just from the way they answered the questions? We had wargaming examples, and he was able to tell from the wargame. Basically, one of the wargame scenarios was a sniper hunt. And... Mm. They could tell that the person who designed it was a sniper. So right, because when when you have that kind of that kind of training, it's just the way you think is just molded by that by that training. So you can immediately recognize when somebody else has has been through the same. Right. You know that's some really powerful stuff. I feel like, I mean, you just talking a little bit about you know just that attitude that the military gave you. Just being in there. Well, I had the attitude beforehand. I had the attitude beforehand. Okay. It just it just amplified it a little bit. Maybe it honed it. It took Mm, it took a talent it it took a talent and made it into a skill. Okay. That's another thing that's important to realize. I mean, yes, I've had a talent in in intellectual capability and in mathematical capability since I was a child. But I've been able to turn it into a skill. And that somebody who has talent has to be very careful not to rest on their talent. Because talent can only take you so far. How do you know that you have that talent, though? Because I feel like a lot of people sometimes don't even realize. Because you have it in physics. Someone might have it in, I don't know, cooking or something. I don't if know. I knew but that, I'd be making up a lot more money than I am. You know, I mean, I don't know how to answer that question other than other than to interrogate somebody. You know, I mean, you can you can tell if somebody is bright. You can tell if somebody is able to do pattern matching. Mm -hmm. You can tell if somebody has critical thinking skill and that's a skill. If if anybody wants to boil it down to one thing that makes us a successful scientist it's critical thinking mm-hmm. if you don't have critical thinking you're going to be open to every stray breeze that comes along mm-hmm. everything mm-hmm. you know the world is filled with great ideas that are crap mm-hmm. you know, i'd really love to know how you i mean i'm assuming again you already had a little bit of that talent that i'm sure you know, pushed your creativeness, but for a lot of other people that are out there, a lot of people listening to this podcast right now that are probably like, Oh, I think I'm talented, but what if I want to actually pursue this? Is there anything that you want to say to them? Is there anything that you want to? Sure. If you find yourself asking yourself, how did the magician do that trick and figuring it out? Mm -hmm. If you, I hate doing that because it's so hard to figure out. (laughs) But I mean, you know, I I just can't figure it out. But if you can talk to somebody and understand what they're saying, Mm -hmm. or if you talk to somebody and you go and you start asking questions, well, what about this? And what about that? Yeah, that's that's leading towards critical thinking. You question everything. You never accept argument by authority yeah and and you don't just accept an idea because you like it Mm 
Mm. You know, you have to. Here's an important thing that I learned in the intelligence business. And again, this isn't breaking any rules. In every intelligence report, it's required by law that you write an appendix that includes what could be wrong with this analysis. Mm-hmm. It's required by law wow. that you attack your bias. Wow. So even bringing that kind of critical eye to your own work. Absolutely. Is... You have to be more critical of your work than you are of anybody else's because you know what you're trying to do. It's like with this book, you know, as an example, we had been through it five times. We no longer saw the typos. Yeah. Couldn't see the errors. Mm -hmm. That's why we have an editor. Right. And and even past that, we, I still get emails saying there's, I found an error on this page. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I when, had... when I have a situation where I'm in front of a class and I fill and I write 10 equations on the board, I could go through every person's notebook and I guarantee you that every single one of them made a mistake somewhere. Hmm. Right. Because people are so busy copying things down, they're not listening. You know, I love Ray D. Inverno's comment about course notes. A lecture is a way of getting the instructor's course notes into the student's notebook, often without interaction by the student. Mm-hmm. That's basically mm-hmm. what lectures are these days, right? <laughs> I mean, lecture is the absolute worst way to teach because <laughs> it lulls people into a false sense of security. I'm sitting here. I understand all that. Yeah. Ten minutes later, you ask him what was your favorite part of it. And go, what? <laughs> so, would you rate like seminars? Are you saying like like colloquiums, uh, no. colloquiums, or something like that is better? Or no, because that's just a lecture. Teach? <laughs> right. I guess a, I guess a seminar is basically. <laughs> so, what I would mean, you say is a better way to teach or a better way to learn? The best way to learn is probably the way I did it. Just books. To, well, I mean, or by whatever means. I mean, I would sit and talk to professors and we would work things out on the blackboard, too. Mm-hmm. No, so I would ask a you, question and then we would sit there and pursue it. Right. Like, if you were, let's say, 15 in the year 2022, how would you take up your, your education journey? It would be a lot easier than it was when I was 12. I mean, because there's this. <laughs> yeah. I wish I'd had this book when I started out. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, the mm-hmm. Feynman lectures were perfectly fine, especially with the exercise books. Mm-hmm. Right. And then I had several experiences, like the professors that I talked to were very open. They were very welcoming. There were a couple of curmudgeons who said, get out of my office. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> but, and you just moved on. <laughs> and I just moved on to the next office, you know. Uh, but I, I, in the astronomy department, I had a mentor. His name was Arthur Code. At that time, he was the chair. And when he was no longer able to answer my questions about black holes, he sent me to see Charlie Gable. 
of the physics department and he was uh, he became my mentor and lifelong friend mm. uh, in fact in 1996 i was able to help him with a problem and from that moment forward i could die happy um he was struggling wow, you helped with, him on a problem he he was he was struggling with a problem and i told him how to how to prove the theorem that he was trying to prove Wow. said that won't work and i said let's give it a try and we basically used mathematical induction we tried it for the problem where n equals one and then we did it for if n then n plus one and it worked and he thanked me and at that moment i wow. could die happy wow. wow what a moment what a moment i can't even because do you feel as if they ever had and obviously this is just from you judging their body language ever had like a moment of oh look at this guy who doesn't even like i have a phd and this guy that doesn't even have a degree nobody even ever me. asked no, me no that. Was like that no right, one ever asked me that. if i had a degree yeah, yeah, yeah. because i didn't go to talk to people until yeah. i had yeah. questions and i had exhausted all of my resources hmm. i mean i mm -hmm. didn't go up to them and say what about the, you know what about this stupid idea although i had stupid ideas hmm. i didn't mm -hmm. realize it at the time but mm -hmm. I found out this is dumb. I remember the first tensor problem I ever worked was uh, writing, uh, figuring out the components of the electromagnetic field tensor and then writing Maxwell's equations in those terms. And I struggled with that for a week. I was 15 years old. Jeez. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now I can do it in 10 minutes, but so what kind of questions would you present to these professors? Because I feel like today, I don't know, because when you were telling your story, I just feel like if I were to go to a professor, like they would just be either like really busy or I would just not have a good enough question. Well, my so first like, question what? would be, yeah. my first question would be, do you have like 15 or 20 minutes? Right, right. Mm -hmm. And then I would ask a question. And now, I made these sure questions? that... Like, like, base, you know, like yeah, level of question and stuff. So, for example, this was what, actually when I was in the physics department and helping teach a course on mechanics to to juniors. And we were looking at the work energy or the energy momentum theorem. And I'm like, how do you derive the energy momentum theorem from first principles? I know how it's normally done where you go backward from the energy momentum theorem and go back and, and reverse the process and get to the force. And then you flip it around and present it that way, which is how the most textbooks do it. So yes, you can prove this theorem, but there's no way that a student is going to be able to derive that. And it took me a week to figure out that the trick is integrating the different, the derivative just like you do with Lagrangian, right? With the Lagrangian mechanics. So I'm like, you know, this is a great teaching moment. You could teach students this trick on this relatively easy case, and then they'll use it the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that's an example of the kind of question I would ask. And we would sit there and play with it for the next 15 or 20 minutes. Sometimes we'd come up with an answer. Sometimes we wouldn't. And but things would continue and i had a clue from that moment how to proceed on my own mm -hmm. 
I feel like you might have also, or maybe it's not, but I don't know if like, like your professors that you spoke to were definitely help, like, like definitely helped you. Right. Absolutely. Would you say that, would you say that they like almost shaped your, you know, interest and passion, like without them, you wouldn't be able to do it. I don't know that I would say that. I mean, I was interested mm -hmm. in black holes when I went to Charlie. He didn't, right, right. he didn't shape my interest in black holes, but he certainly, he certainly got my thinking more on, more on track. More on mm -hmm. track. I think that's a good way to put it. Cause um, I feel like if you're doing things by yourself, the on track part of it might be like, because I feel sure. like if you're just, but doing... I mean, the, but these days we have email, we have video yeah, conferencing, we... right. you know, we didn't have that when I was a kid, you <laughs> know, we didn't have that when I was 15, I would have to physically walk to the university to go to their offices and talk to people in meteorology or astronomy or physics or biochemistry or whatever I was interested in at that time. But wow. the other thing is you have to be willing to put yourself out there. Yeah. Yeah, totally. You know, you have a lot of, a lot of tra the trap that a lot of people fall into is they live in an echo chamber of their own thoughts. Mm -hmm. And they never test their thoughts to, uh, against other people. So they don't realize that they're falling into this black hole. And they don't have the critical thinking to look at their own, to evaluate their own work. Hmm. Somewhere along the line, our school system, maybe it never did, but our school system doesn't teach people to think. It tries to teach people what to think. Hmm. But it doesn't teach them how to do it. There are, you know, I, I found like 15 questions that you can ask yourself. A checklist, if you like. And go through. Like when you encounter a term, can you really define it? Even, right. you know, there are going to be undefined terms where you end up with circular reasoning. Like the whole thing with force and mass, it's a circular, it's circular definition. You can't describe mass without describing force and you can't describe force without describing mass. You just have to agree to understand sort of what you vaguely mean by those things. <laughs> and what's energy? Nobody can answer exactly. that question. It's we don't know what energy is. It's a number that <laughs> in a closed system, when you do something, it's the same number when you're done. Yeah. Essentially. That's about it. You know, but it's the basis of all of physics, right? <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> but we don't know what the hell it is. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, I think... I think energy is one of the funniest things that I, I try to grapple with because no matter what I think about, right, like kinetic potential friction and heat and all this stuff, it, it all boils down to, oh, it's a number. And, you know, if you have like, if it's a closed system, it stays the same. 
if you have like influences from the outside, it could change. That's about it. Well, there are some interesting insights you can get. Like all energy is a volume. Wait, all energy is a volume? Sure. What's kinetic energy? MV squared, one half MV squared. So MV squared, that's a volume, right? What? You mean like units of meters? No, of so you meter. have so you have mass, you have velocity, and you have velocity. That's a volume yeah. that creates a volume, right? Okay, so in like a volume in in like an arbitrary a, like units yeah. kind of sense. Yeah, exactly. Oh. Same thing with potential energy, right? And mm, GH, right? right? And GH, right. right. That's a very that's a very interesting way to think about it. I have never thought of it like the individual What? That's interesting. I've never a thought volume. about it like the individual. I've never ever heard anybody say energy is a volume and describe <laughs> it in the way that you just did. That's very Yeah, that is very interesting. <laughs> he, by the way, for those listeners out there, when he was talking about MV and V, he was kind of making like the right-hand rule kind of Yeah. look basically yeah. like the three And there's a left-hand rule too, by the way. It's not just a right. Yeah. There's a you can have left-handed coordinate systems too. Yeah. Yeah. That is I, wow. I've been. I'm still thinking about that volume yeah. thing. Like, I've, <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. So when weird. I first realized that, it was like it can't. You know, not that it necessarily means anything, but it's just an no. interesting fact. Yeah. That it, it, it's like <laughs> it's like a cube, but just like instead of distance it's like <laughs> mass <laughs> think about it and velocity. think about it this way though uh, and if you think about it it makes sense if you integrate over energy you're basically integrating over a volume wait a second wait what if you integrate over energy yeah, you're integrating the, integral of the, en the element of energy that you're integrating, the the differential of the energy that you're integrating over oh, it yeah, yeah. effectively works like a volume. That's right. Because imagine you're integrating just like over the domain of like a, a cube, right? You have like dx, dy, and dz. But instead of the domain being distance, it's it's mass, oh, velocity, so and so you integrate over yeah. like the, di yeah. the differential is just in a... It's just a variable at the end of the day, so it doesn't matter yeah, what it represents. I mean, you've got to, you know, don't get so, you know, don't drive yourself into a rut. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Wow. Oh, my. I have Very learned cool. so much today. Wow. Just, just mainly just about just living, I think. <laughs> no, like, seriously, just about living life, because I feel like your outlook on life and the way that you tackle things, oh, I like it, so I do it. That's like, that's such an amazing way to live. Well, I mean, you know, with my handicap, the same, it's the same way. I, in 2018, I lost my left leg below the knee from an infection I got. And then September, that was in May to June. And then in September, I went blind. I got wow. severe cataracts in both eyes. Oh, my. Wow. And uh, then my mother-in-law passed away <laughs> that same. It was a bad year. And fortunately, we had the resources that I was able to get cataract surgery on both eyes. 
And, uh, but you know, the least thing that happened was my leg went. <laughs> yeah. Oh my. But you know, through all it that, hasn't stopped all me. That. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly the takeaway from here. Through all no, that. I mean, yeah, I miss taking long walks, but you know, it hasn't really changed the way I do things. Right. Right. Wow. Wow. I'm well, still like just thrown aback by all yeah, the stuff just, you do. I think <laughs> definitely going to talk about. It. There's okay, just so much, to... so much content. It's... There's so much. Well, I just like I, I, I like... you know, I invite you yeah. guys to some of our mask meetings. Uh, you can check it out on. You can check it out on Meetup if you're on, on yeah, Meetup. So, so that's where we again, have our scheduling. Okay, so once again, give us the link or whatever um, to the website and whatever has a schedule. And we'll be putting everything in the description below. So okay. all the listeners out there, we're, I, I legitimately think this, this sounds really cool. And if the timing obviously works, I'm not sure. I think it's just central, right? So just an hour behind, not horrible. But if the timing works out, I think that will be amazing. Yeah. Um, hope other people can join as well. I mean, like if you just have a passion, we have a lot of listeners that just yeah. like physics, but are not we're, physics exactly no. like you. So. We have no entry requirements other than you're interested and you're willing to learn. That's, that's exactly what you want. That's all you want. This, this, this is almost like a school. I mean, I'm assuming that's how you structured it. Yeah, basically, like but we don't have it. You know, we charge $10 a year. Which is yeah. just a little less than real <laughs> than actual university. Just a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> but I think, our, I think the quality of education right. you get is pretty good. Yeah. Okay. Mm. That's good. That's good to hear. And I mean, we've already spoken about, we've had, we have episodes and episodes on, you know, how to learn physics, how to learn math. Like we give out all like a Feynman, like for example, we were mentioning the uh, Feynman lectures that are literally available for free online. So many resources, books and whatnot that even you were able to do. And so I, I should, actually, I, I actually met Feynman at a conference once. Wow. That is absolutely wow. insane. <laughs> Like the fact that you met Richard Feynman. Wow. We didn't really talk much about physics. He was telling the story about how he found the fence at the the hole in the fence at Los Alamos. Wait, what? <laughs> the hole in the when fence? he was at, at Los Alamos for the Manhattan Project, he found a hole in the fence. And did he go and talk to the security people and tell them that he found a hole in the fence? No, he didn't do that. He went in the hole and walked out the main gate, and then he went in the hole and walked out the main gate, went in the hole, and then he got arrested walking out the main gate again because he didn't what? getting back in. <laughs> what? That's hilarious. That's That's fine, man. <laughs> well, a hood of a character. I'm sure I, I would... That would be awesome. Yeah. But if, if, if anything, you know, should be taken away from this podcast, I feel like it's literally just do what you want to do do, do what, what you, you want to do and and have the courage of your convictions mm, you know perfect. the worst that somebody's gonna say to you is no best way to put it that's the worst and gonna say. you know when i called john wheeler collect i showed you gravitation he was one of the yes. co-authors of that book yeah uh he was probably the greatest physicist you've never heard of John Wheeler is a big mm. name, of course. And uh, he was a really sweet guy. And in fact, just before he passed away, I reminded him of the phone call that we had. 
mm-hmm. and he, he really appreciated that. And but I called him when he was at University of Austin, collect at in in 1974. Wow. <laughs> so wow. that was not a cheap call. And uh, we talked for 45 minutes about black holes. I was 13 years old at the time. And he sent me a mimeographed copy of the bibliography that he gave to his grad students. Wow. How could he speak to a 13-year-old? I feel like like that really shows a lot about even them as a professor. Yeah, well, like he didn't ask how old I just old felt like they, they wouldn't. Yeah, really. That, I mean, they, he couldn't tell from the voice. <laughs> I feel like a 13-year-old voice would be quite distinctive. Um, <laughs> when you've dealt with a couple of hundred students. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's also true. true. That's, that's probably, true. you can't really assume. <laughs> you know, yeah, you're, yeah, you're totally right. You're totally right. Yeah. Wow, that's just amazing. But, that's just amazing. So that was literally one of the formative experiences for me. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. pursued that bibliography, and I got copies of all the papers and read them, and worked through gravitation i had a great moment i was going to solve the vorticity equation of fluid dynamics using the stress tensor and i figured that would be great and i suddenly realized at that moment 15 years old that it didn't matter how big our computers were we were never going to be able to forecast the atmosphere correctly because there was no way that we could solve the vorticity equation because you need to know the friction coefficient of air and the friction coefficient of air here is different than the friction coefficient of air here. Right. Mm. Oh, no. Because the chemical so, composition of the air here is different than it is here. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So a... without being able to know the friction coefficient of air, you can't solve the vorticity equation. So everything, Wait, can, can approximate, everything is a can parameterization. We... Can we do it now? Well, now we can do no, it. Right? Not no, not a chance. Unless no, you have no, temperature centers this dense throughout the atmosphere. <laughs> but, well, an approximation is, I mean, all, all that we do, right? I mean, that's, that's right. we do. All and we don't even know if the Navier-Stokes equations are the correct equations. Well, they're pretty good. <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind but of funny that you mentioned that because I'm literally doing they're good beyond right they're, now, they're, so. they're good out to 36 hours and then you're then you're dropping off to background. Then you're dropping off to statistics. Hmm. 48 hours, hmm. and you've got a 60% accuracy rate in forecasts. So you're talking about atmospheric, right? Navier-Stokes would definitely not be essential for atmospheric. I can I can definitely see. I'm, I'm assuming Navier is more for like... It's the, a, best, it's the best one. It's the best equation we've got. But right. I mean, you know, look at the Millennium problem, right? We don't know if it's solvable everywhere. Right, right, exactly. Mm. yeah that's the big problem so i mean that's one of my areas of research too because i do tornado physics and i also do i when i was in madison i was part of the chaos and complex systems seminar group for example i gave many talks to them about the geometry of chaos and things like that that's quite a uh an enlightening thought to have at 15 years old to to realize that you know what everything is an approximation (laughs) and and it doesn't matter it doesn't matter how powerful your computer gets yeah no matter what you know you're never going to be able to accurately forecast 
of course, you, there is one way you could do it. You could build an earth and an atmosphere and run the atmosphere as a model of the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, I'm assuming that's not very feasible. <laughs> not really, no, but that's what it would take. I mean, we don't even know how many degrees of freedom there are in the atmosphere, right? The volume of phase space could be Avogadro's number times the number of particles, right? Yeah. yeah. Massive, yeah, I guess it could be. We don't even don't even have a way to estimate that. So, yeah, so, the, 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 the computational power would be, you know, unimaginable. Well, quantum computers, here we come. <laughs> well, even a quantum computer might not yeah, be. No, I wouldn't really uh, solve it. No, because I it, mean, it, the nice thing the about problem. it is you can do matrix Holes. operations in a single step. That's the big advantage that a quantum computer would have. I mean, it definitely does help with certain programs. I mean, there are actually till, still till date so many programs that run much faster on supercomputers than quantum. I mean, computers. I've actually built a, uh, a quantum computing simulator in Mathematica. How? What? <laughs> <laughs> How was that even done? How can you? So it, it it simulates the quantum. It gives you the results that a quantum computer would give you. It takes forever by comparison, but uh, okay. but it simulates Damn. what a quantum computer would be able to do. Basically, it's operator algebra stuff. Hmm. Wow. wow, very enlightening experience for uh, for both of us yeah. today. God. Wow, well, we've learned, we, we've a covered lot. a lot of ground in we this have. podcast. We have uh, super interesting episode. Thank you so much for for contacting us and and you know making this episode happen. Uh, it's greatly appreciated. Sure, I had a blast. I'm 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 gonna be completely honest. I read amateur scientist on your website and I, I i saw a bunch of things that you were doing and i'm like okay i mean i'm sure like he's interested in this but you know i'm like we're probably just going to talk about that and i i saw also saw you had a few books here and there so i'm like okay you know he writes in his free time no way would i have imagined that you actually write research papers as an amateur scientist so there are a lot of things that i think i have definitely learned today first off you don't need school to do what you want to do I think that's the big takeaway. Mm -hmm. And second of all, even if you are in it, okay, let, let me actually ask you this, like a nice end off. Do you have anything to say that to people who are already in school? Because I feel like a majority of our listeners probably are and are already taking physics or something like that. Is there anything you want to say to them to how to get that extra bit of learning or how to, how to satisfy yourself and not just do what the school is telling you to do? I guess I would... I would, there are three things that I would say. First thing is, as I said in this discussion before we started, one thing I tell all of my students, fail early and often. Mm -hmm. You never learn by being right. All you learned is that you knew it in advance. You only learn by being wrong. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Second thing, and this is also something that I give my students, you can either be smart and look stupid or you can look smart and be stupid. If you have a, you know, one of the lessons I learned from the Navy is the only stupid question is the one you don't ask. Mm -hmm. If you have a question, ask it. Otherwise you're being stupid. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
And totally. Uh, so often we're content with being familiar with an idea rather than really grasping it. The third thing I would say is while we have to write a book or present a series of lectures linearly, your brain doesn't work that way. There are going to be things that you grok immediately. There are going to be things that you will be able to parrot the definition of and won't understand for 10 years. Mm. Don't let that get in your way. Write down the fact that you didn't understand that and move on. And pretend like you did understand it. But be aware that you don't. Some very important lessons here, I think, for everyone, including yeah. and the, very much the, us the first well. step is, is knowing that you don't know it. Yeah. Right. If you're if you're just blind to that fact, then nothing's ever gonna change. Yeah. 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 Wow. So I mean, I hope to everyone listening out there. I mean, we definitely did, and I'm sure if you're listening till right now, you definitely enjoyed this podcast. So um thank you, George, first of all. As Parker already mentioned, thank you so much for this conversation. Would have never expected it to happen. So happy that it did. So thank you for that. I have a yeah, tendency to follow through on things when I start them. <laughs> <laughs> well, here we are. So we're going to put all the links to everything in the description if you're interested. And um, yeah, make sure to uh, follow the podcast for more uh, episodes like this one. And to right. Rate, rate the podcast five stars on Spotify. Is there anywhere that you want, um, I mean, apart from the link in the description that we're already going to put, is there anything else that you want to just share with the, with, the, with the listeners out there? I have been considering launching a podcast of my own, but I haven't, okay. I haven't taken the step yet. So we're still exploring the idea, what would we cover and things like that. But, mm -hmm. you know. But I've been listening to you guys, and that's sort of been inspiring to me. Awesome. So wow, we've inspired so you. Oh keep my uh, God. everybody out there. Keep your eyes and ears open for uh, the for George's upcoming podcast, possibly. <laughs> that would be really cool. That would be really cool. All right. Well, uh, yeah. I guess that that that's it for the episode. It's been um, episode number one hundred eight. That's the one of the Math and Physics podcast. So. Uh, yeah, I'm your host, Parker. And I'm Ray, and we will see you soon. Bye, guys.